I'm Peter Devlin with the Cinema Audio Society, and you're listening to In Conversation. It's my duffel bag. What do you got in there? I don't know, but it's heavy. You look awful blue for a guy who pretty much saved the world. Yeah, well, I guess I got the crack ribs to prove it. You got me. You're saying that that thing in the ice was trying to become our dogs? Yeah. It seems to be able to imitate other life forms. Those clips were from The Rocketeer, Halloween, and The Thing, and from the varied resume of production mixer Tommy Causey CAS. It's the directors that Tommy worked with from his first feature until his retirement in 2010 that is so impressive. They include John Carpenter, James L. Brooks, Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Johnson, Richard Donner, Steven Soderbergh, and Warren Beatty. In 1991, Tommy was nominated for a CS Award, an Academy Award, and a BAFTA Award for his work in Warren Beatty's film, Dick Tracy. We recorded this podcast remotely due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and I began our conversation by asking Tommy about his first film as a sound recordist, Night of the Strangler. Yes, uh, I was a student at Tulane, and the professor was doing a film on the weekends, and he needed some help, and he asked for anyone that would like to come in on the weekends and work on this film, Night of the Strangler. And... uh he went around the room and said, would anyone like to work on the sound? And I raised my hand, and lo and behold, that was the beginning. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I It was a lot of uh, learning uh, by experience, and they had a, a, an editor from Hollywood come in, and I was very excited because I had done the best I could um, with really limited equipment. And I asked this editor, how was the sound? And he looked up at me uh, and said, piss poor. So that was the beginning of my first film. And uh, I learned a lot. And um, the director's name was Joy Halk. And the reason he was the director was that his father owned a lot of Joy Theaters, J-O-Y, Joy Theaters. And most of them were drive-ins. So he let his son make some of the B-level films. And the next film that this group of people for Joy Theaters made was Creature from Black Lake. And the cameraman uh, was a nice guy, and his name was Dean Cundy. And Dean and I were to work 
on many films thereafter. And as a matter of fact, we did Creature from the Black Lake. And as we finished the film, he said, I'm going around the world on a documentary. Do you think you would like to come? And I said, sure, that sounds great. And before you know it, I was working with Dean, and we went all over the place. And it was a big experience for me because not only did I travel the world, but I got to work with a really great cameraman, Dean. And then uh, about six months later, Dean called up and he said, I don't know if you realize it, but there's an open period, and anyone who's worked for an L.A. company can get into the union. So (laughs) I got into the union. So tell me, when you made that decision to move out to Los Angeles, had you any reservations about leaving Louisiana? No. I had no reservations moving from Louisiana because I couldn't make a living there. I wanted to work in Hollywood and make a living. (laughs) Uh, I, I was a real film buff. I loved all the Hitchcock and John Ford and Howard Hawks. And I actually thought I could move to Hollywood and work with all these great directors. What I didn't realize was the directors were all getting old and I would end up with a, a new generation of great directors. But I really just wanted to work on real uh, Hollywood type movies. I, I was, I, I, I had that in my mind and I realized I couldn't do it in Louisiana. Now, many production mixers talk about their associations with directors at the beginning of their career. For example, Bill Kaplan with Robert Zemeckis. Yes, uh, si- yes. Si- Simon Hayes with uh, Guy Ritchie. And I know that one director who I'm a huge fan of, John Carpenter, was certainly just starting out his career. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. (laughs) I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil the wonderful tones of donald pleasance oh uh, what a great great character actor so tell me john carpenter how did that all start um i was working with deborah hill who was the producer on halloween uh she was also very close to john and um he came to visit Deborah on a location. I was down in San Diego with um, Deborah uh, on a picture that might not even make the resume called Mafia on the Bounty. Now that was low budget. And, uh, but John came down to visit Deborah. Uh, we went out to dinner. We had, you know, a fun conversation and, um, I was available and Deborah recommended me and I came in to meet John and it just, uh, one thing led to another. And, um, 
it was just it was just one of those fun things in life that happens and you're not really in control over it. It just is a fate. Now, I noticed that you did some television work at that time. You did Police Story. You did Dallas. Was it an easier time to cross over from features into television in Los Angeles back in the mid-70s? This is kind of a funny story. Back in New Orleans, I did this really low-budget film. Oh, I can't think of the name right now. Oh, Ape Over Manhattan. It was the evening that... um, King Kong was on top of the building and he looks into the top floor and there's a gay orgy going on. And it was a musical by some very talented people in New Orleans who had written this musical. And I had read about Warner Brothers had this playback system. It was a wireless playback. And at the time that was quite unusual And so I called the head of Warner Brothers uh, sound department, Hal Landaker, and uh, he, I I, I rented this rather elaborate system that didn't really work, but he and I were on the phone all the time, and he appreciated my sense of humor, and I appreciated his uh, technical expertise, and offhandedly, he said, Well, whenever you come out to Hollywood, kid, look me up. Well, remember back this, the previous story that I got into the union and that was on a Friday afternoon and over the weekend, Hal had had a heart attack and his son was in the office. Anyway, I had the meeting with Hal, so I, I, I had made a meeting with Hal, but he was not there. He was in the hospital. I went for the meeting, and uh, his son was there in the office, and he was talking to his father, and uh, they, had had the, they had a mixer quit on police story. And so he was asking his father, well, who should I send over? And he said, who's in the office? And he said, oh, that kid from New Orleans. And he said, send him. Now, obviously, that would have never happened. Uh, but I just happened to be in the office at that moment. I went over to meet the producer on Police Story. And lo and behold, he had lived in New Orleans. He was a student at Tulane. We ended up talking and got got along beautifully. And he said, do you know what you're doing? I lied through my teeth. And I said, yes. And then he says, okay, we'll give you a try tomorrow. And I ran from stage to stage watching what the sound mixers did. Primarily what I could pick up was they said speed. And uh, so the next day I was up and running on a TV series It was a painful learning experience because I truly didn't know the run of the show, but I I learned it. I figured it out. And um, so anyway, I got that TV series under my belt. And then this was just at the point where John and Deborah were producing Halloween. I got a feature film and everybody was going, what the hell? The guy has a TV series, now a feature film. He must know what he's doing. And so I, um, I was up and running. So that was uh, definitely <laughs> definition of serendipity there. It was. It was very comical. 
because I really made every mistake possible. And I, but I, because I was so passionate about wanting to work and get the best sound possible. Um, for what I didn't know, they appreciated what I was trying to do. And that everyday work of the television series really paid off because I just, man, it was long hours and I figured out what a sound mixer really did. And, uh, you know, it was a TV series where they did 30, 40 setups a day. It was just mind boggling to someone who had never done that. And then by the time I got to work with John, oh, it was just like a privilege to work on a feature film with a, you know, a really, um, he, he had as much passion to making a great film as I did. With that move from Louisiana to Los Angeles, what sort of equipment did you have? Because you talk about working through Warner Brothers, where their policy, I believe, would have been to use their equipment. And then suddenly you're working on a feature film. What gear did you have? Did you borrow it from them? Did you rent your own? Did you buy your own? How did that go? I started off like almost everyone during that period with a Nagra 4 mono recorder, a Sela mixer, about a half a dozen different Sennheisers and ships, and I, I had a basic system that could fit in the trunk of my car, which was a very large imp Chevrolet Impala. And uh, it took a few years before I built up multiple recorders and microphones and cases and would work out of a truck. But uh, when I worked with John, it was really simple. It was a... Mono Nagra and a Sennheiser 415, just like about everybody at that time. And you're right at at Warner Brothers, it was it was so oh man, it, it was very strict. You used their equipment, and uh, but I, I was able to figure that out too. And um, uh, since I was so you know, easygoing about using their equipment. I, I was popular with them because there were so many people who refused to do it, but I just wanted to make a living at that time. And uh, I, was, I was willing to say, sure, not a problem. So when you were filming Halloween, which I believe was shot in the Pasadena area, mm -hmm. from what I remember from the film, there was a lot of moving camera early days of Steadicam, I believe. Was that a t challenging situation for your boom operator? And was this um, was this one of the first movies that you did with uh, Joe Brennan? Yes. Uh, Joe and I started working on Halloween. And remember, I had been working with Dean Cundy and Ray Stella, and we had done a lot of documentary moving camera not the steady cam but we had done a lot of sound uh, with camera where the camera was just everywhere and so we were we were there and john suggested we do steady cam and uh dean was really truly uh one of the first and the best because he he could just light all these different areas 
And Ray, his camera operator, was just really a good steady cam operator. And Joe, I just talk about being lucky. I got someone who was tall and agile and also as passionate about movie making. And he just, he was just a great boom man. And he just did things with the microphone in terms of that moving camera that required a lot of physical exertion as well as mental. He just, he was a great boom man. And we, he got the microphone where it needed to be on those steady camp shots. How did you meet Joe? How did he come to be your boom <laughs> operator in Halloween? Uh, he was our next door neighbor in New Orleans and he was a painter with a long pole. And uh, we became good friends. And I said, you know, we should go to Hollywood and start working on these movies. Um, Joe had gone to Notre Dame. He had a college education. He had seen every movie I had seen, all the foreign movies. Uh, we were really into making movies. And um, I was about to say, if Joe couldn't get a microphone in on these shots, he would understand that and figure out a way to plant a microphone. And so we were able to get a soundtrack uh, for the complete shot. And, you know, that's something a director really loves is to be able to go to dailies and hear it. And at the time, you know, when there wasn't all this multi-tracks, uh, the editors were just knocked out because they had that one track to cut with. And if it, it incorporated all the sounds you needed, gee, they just thought, man, this is the greatest. And so we developed a good reputation of being able to get good tracks for difficult shots. And, um, uh, you know, I, I met Joe in New Orleans. <laughs> and with, with those Steadicam moves, it was before the advent of radio boom. So everything was cable. Did you have a third person on the show or was it a two person crew? Uh, Halloween was non-union and it was just a two man crew. And we would incorporate everyone from craft service to onset painters. Everybody would help with those cables. And, um, it wasn't until a few years later that uh, a third man became standard. And it, it wasn't until a couple of years later that all the movies we did were union. And at that time, we always had a third person. But no, those early John Carpenter pictures were non-union. <laughs> and it, that meant that the cable became a pretty big, big issue. Uh, trying to get it. And if you remember from those opening shots of Halloween, it's up and down stairs and out the, out the door and in through, through the front yard. And it was a big deal. <laughs> and with uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis, who at that time, this was probably her first big uh, film that got so much uh, attention and also D Donald Pleasance. Can you tell us just what it was like? Because you've got a film that nobody's, quite seen a film like this before. John Carpenter's influences being Alfred Hitchcock, who's a film that obviously as a filmmaker influenced you. So did everybody realize at the time, 
this is different. This could be a box office hit. Absolutely not. Um, we all knew we were having a good time, and we all knew that we that John had a good idea of what he wanted, but it had n- never crossed our minds that it was going to be a hit. It just was a good time. Um, that happens a lot. You're just not aware of what pictures are going to be a big success and which ones aren't. Um, and this was one of those. Uh, I, I don't know. I, so much of that picture's success was to John's um, musical soundtrack. It was just fantastic. And it also had to do with his ability to cut the film in such a, you know, precise way. Um, but it, it never, it, it was never, uh, it never had the blanket of being a big deal. It was always just, uh, <laughs> it was a bunch of kids going out to make a movie. And uh, uh, we had a terrific time. I, I don't, I don't think it, nothing ever duplicated that again. And that had a lot to do with Dean. Dean was really down to earth. All of his crew was down to earth. I looked at a crew list recently, and I, I bet you there wasn't more than, and I'm talking the entire crew, more than 20 people. Um, and that really helps because everybody sort of pulls together. And um, most of the people that were on the picture ended up working on a lot of John's pictures. But no, we were not aware that we were working on something good. Um, it wasn't until the first screenings in Westwood that everybody went, holy shit, this is terrific. And with Donald Pleasance bringing a level of gravitas and, you know, as a, as a character actor, he had, has done so many amazing films. What was he like? What was his presence on the set? Uh, that word gravitas is exactly what happened whenever he was there because he really was uh, the old pro from Dover. And he really, we all stood in awe of his abilities. And <sighs> Jamie was a kid. She might have been 18 at the time. And then all the young supporting actors were all young and most of them had never really been in a movie. So Donald really did um, really show us the way of of how you be a trooper and a pro and come in and do it because he was just so effective in that role. Uh, He just uh, he and as you pointed out, his voice was so good. And there was something I was thinking about there is uh, a great director knows how to block the camera. But a great director also knows how to block for the microphone. And John, from the day one, was just like that. He always, he blocked the, sh- the actual shot so it could sound good. And, you know, that's that's a gift. Uh, that's a Spielberg gift. You just, you, you have a, a director who knows how to set it up. And when he sets it up, the microphone's going to be in the right place. And that's also because the camera's in the right place. And if if that doesn't happen, it won't sound good. 
you know, if the camera's not in the right place. You, you talk about uh, having done so many films with Dean Cundey. That's an important relationship on the set. That's somebody who's in your corner when you do run into those challenges that we all have as production mixers. Uh, so you're working in the most almost a perfect environment. John Carpenter, who understands the blocking, a DP that you've got a relationship. It must have been just such a a, a unique time to be on these films because you, you you've gone you go on to do um, Escape from New York, The Thing. I mean, it's just this list of of the most wonderful films of that time period, and with the same group of people. It was such a, a joy uh, because uh, Dean was so easy to work with. Uh, he and and not only that, uh, Dean was always very. He would contribute to when you're having a problem. He would contribute a way to solve the problem, and you know. This happens every once in a while. You get a cameraman who who recognize you're having difficulties and will come up a, with a helpful solution of the blocking or the lighting or the gripware, you know. And so you just, you know, there are certain cameramen you go to and they just, they really look at you like, fuck you. Dean was just the opposite. He would he would think about it and help you sort through the issues. I mean, we had some great films like The Thing, which were really, um, really complicated because you were on a glacier, you were in difficult weather, and um, uh, once again, it was it turned out to be a great sounding movies because. Uh, Dean and John were so um, into making it a great-looking film. Since you mentioned the thing, I'm just going to play a clip from that film. I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. The storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. One other thing, I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody, nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Nobody trusts anybody now. There's nothing else I can do. Just wait. RJ McCready, helicopter pilot, US outpost number 31. So if there are members of the CAS, that haven't seen that film, they should. The Thing was a remake of a Howard Hawks film from the 1950s called The Thing from Another World. And it tells the story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encountered the eponymous Thing, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates, then imitates other organisms. Uh, I can remember going to see The Thing in Leicester Square in 1982. 
I was a huge John Carpenter fan. And from that opening vista shot of the glacier, the helicopter, and that pulsating Ennio Morricone score, I was hooked. It's absolutely one of my favorite John Carpenter films and also score, even though I do believe that John Carpenter had a huge hand in working on that score and adding to what Ennio Morricone did. Tell us more about the thing, because I know you were uh, shooting not only in Canada, but in Los Angeles. The stages were being uh, brought down to a temperature below zero so that you could get the breaths on the actors. Um, You know, while you were talking, I was just thinking that was one of the first pictures we had worked with John Lloyd. And John Lloyd was a fantastic production designer. And he had done a lot of the Hitchcock pictures, and he was just so skilled. And he built the, that that uh, sets in Universal and refrigerated them, and they were so realistic and so wonderful. And and then when people would breathe out, you could see their breath. And uh, I, you know, you asked about whether we knew at the time. Halloween was going to be a success and that we didn't. Well, by the time we got to escape and the thing, we were positive what we were doing was fabulous. And um, it just, we just believed in John's ability to pull it all together. And uh, by the time we got to up on the glacier in Alaska, it was just a, a whirlwind of an adventure and John had fallen in love with helicopters. And so much of the work in Canada was, or Alaska was was done where we could get to it by helicopter. Um, Once again, we relied, or I shouldn't say we did, Dean and John relied on the Steadicam and it was just a great way to maneuver these various sets um, once again, Joe Brennan was able to put his mic somehow or another in all the right places. You, you know, at that time, we didn't really use radio mics. I mean, they were available to us, but we just knew if we could get the proper sound with the proper mic, like a Shep's, it was just going to sound fabulous. And it did. And, uh, we didn't rely on lavaliers. I mean... I don't even know if there's a shot in the thing with the lavalier. How did you prepare for those type of um, temperatures? And and (laughs) what were you dealing with in terms of being able to preserve the battery life? I um, uh, uh, got a a sled uh, and I put the equipment into backpacks that had stands. I went and found these army... um, hand warmers uh, and put those behind the equipment and underneath the equipment so they would stay warm. Um, I really did my homework and figured out ways. And then, you know, I, I got regular heating pads that you plug in and I put those into those backpacks. And whenever I could get electricity, I'd plug those in. That equipment was bulletproof. You could take it anywhere and use it anytime. We had a cold room, which I guess most people are familiar if they shoot in these cold environments. So the equipment could stay at one temperature. It will, you, you didn't bring it into the, the warm 
uh, environment. You kept it in a cold environment. And then you had a separate package that was for the the scenes that were done in the warmer rooms. Um, you know, we, it was just great fun figuring it all out. Uh, and um, I don't know. The thing turned out to be a great picture. It... <laughs> It, it it was our comeuppance, though, because it did not turn out to be a hit at all. It, it was released the same summer as E.T. by the same studio, Universal. And let's face it, E.T. was a blockbuster, and Universal just forgot about the thing. Uh, although the, the thing was well-loved by audiences. It just didn't have the same ability to create, you know, like E.T. did. It was, uh, but, you know, I ended up using Sennheisers on that picture rather than Sheps because they were much more uh, rugged in the cold weather and were less um, affected by humidity. So that was a picture where we left our ships, which we had been using almost exclusively, and went to the Sennheisers and used an 816 a lot. And that's another thing. Joe was very good with the long mics. He, he, he could, you know, uh, cue an 816, and it would really just sound phenomenal. And something that we learned is snow is one of the great recording areas. If you can get a microphone in the right position out in snow, it's going to sound brilliantly. You mentioned the fact that E.T. was the big hit of, of, of that summer. I mean, when I watched the thing in Leicester Square in London, uh, to me, that for me was the film of the year. Uh, you had the incredible special effects, makeup effects, uh, mechanical effects of Bob Botchin, um, Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Donald Moffat. I mean, oh, it's a boy. darker movie. It's a much darker movie, obviously. Oh. But I think in retrospect, many people look back at that and it is one of their favorite John Carpenter films. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that it, it holds up brilliantly. And it's a it's an adult movie. Um, it's about the darker side of life. It's, it's you know, uh, but the studio didn't get it. They had no, it just didn't go over well with the, the, what everyone called that building at Universal, the Black Tower. It just uh, didn't hold up as well for them. And with Kurt Russell uh, having worked with John Carpenter on Escape from New York, um, was this uh, evolution uh, in terms of their relationship? Uh, did they have a great rapport on set? Well, you know, it's uh, my own theory, just like John Ford had John Wayne. I really think John Carpenter had Kurt Russell. I think Kurt uh, really um, personified uh, John's alter ego, the tough guy, the uh, soft-spoken, rugged individual. I, I really think that... Uh, that was it was a a relationship made in heaven uh they they really they really hit it off and i think john loved 
the shorthand that they had. He he didn't really have to talk to Kurt. Kurt just came out and did it. And I think that's really what John wanted. We had a real uh, unique group of friends there. Uh, the assistant director was Larry Franco, and he was very close to Kurt. And there was, you know, and Dean and myself and the crew, we all loved Kurt because he was just so down to earth. Um, Kurt was also a, a fan fascinating actor in that a lot of those lines from Escape from New York and in the thing were literally said in a whisper. Um, but it was a whisper once again, that was very audible and very recordable. Did you have a post team that John worked with that you knew personally so that you could go to the uh, post mixing or dialogue editing? Yeah, we, we, another one of those great things. Um, most of John's pictures were mixed by Bill Varney at uh, Samuel Goldwyn Sound. And Bill was absolutely one of the best. Uh, he just, he not only did John's pictures, but he did a lot of other really well known directors and, Oh man, he was terrific. <laughs> and and he really just uh took the time and gave the effort and made a great picture. And that time would you have been comfortable to to go over to the stages and sit in on the dub? Absolutely. And uh I I had such a great time and someone like Bill Varney uh, would be happy to have you and happy to tell you what you did wrong and happy to tell you what you were getting right. And um, I ended up getting quite a few pictures through Bill Varney. He would recommend me to other directors and oh yeah, I, that was one of the things I would love is to go sit in the theater in that back area with the mixers and hear it in such a way that you'll never hear it again, you know, just utter, clear, beautiful, full sound. And, um, and then also it's, it's separated into its various parts. Yeah. I, I ended up going over to Samuel Goldwyn sound quite a bit. And, um, but Bill Varney was one of these guys who just made everyone that came in that door feel welcome. He, he was, he was a big, big reason those pictures sounded the way they sounded. I'm not sure when he started, but it, it could have been as early as Halloween. When you were in pre-production on a film, did Joe uh, go out with you on tech scouts or anything like that? What was your collaboration with, with Joe before a movie started or even during a movie? Did you break down the script together? What was your approach? Uh, I don't think Joe ever went on any scouts with me, but I know Joe and I would spend a couple of weeks going through the equipment, uh, have a sit down reading, going through the script Um we were immersed in the movie process and uh, Joe was very much a part of that. And, um, but it was hard enough getting me on the tech scouts. Well, if I can just say it hasn't changed, Tommy, 
It hasn't changed. It's still very difficult to have a production mixer and a tech scout. During, I mean, we're, we're looking at time period wise, the 1980s. Uh, who uh, were your contemporaries? Were there other production mixers that you knew quite well? Well, what was what was Los Angeles like in that time period? Because you've come from Louisiana, uh, you've established yourself. Well, I stood in awe of like the mixers who had been working for years, like Gene Ganamesa. Um, but there were a few new guys like Jeff Wexler and Bill Kaplan who just were, you could tell they were on the right track and they were going to be there for a while. And um, I, I wish I could think better right now, but there were older mixers who were great. And some of the younger guys, um, really, Art Rochester was one of them. Uh, oh, gosh, Jim Webb was sort of a an icon for all of us because he had been working with Altman. And Altman had come up with this whole new concept of putting all the microphones on separate tracks. And at that time, about the only one that could handle that technological advancement was Jim Webb. And Jim did it and was just, oh, he was he was sort of a forerunner of what is the standard now. And um, there, you know, the, it, it, that would be a whole separate interview about the people in Los Angeles who were doing such great work on feature films because in the seventies, it was really, uh, what was it? it was a different world. It was a, a one mic, uh, you get bloody, you go in there and you make sure the microphone's in one position. And then about in the eighties, everyone started getting very creative and the, the equipment was so much better because of social media. There are groups kind of dedicated to sound mixing and sound carts. And just recently, uh, John Pritchett put up a picture of his equipment for working in a Robert Altman movie, which then led to somebody putting up a picture of Jim Webb's rig. And you just looked at the size of it. And today we're spoiled for choice, not in terms of not only in terms of radio mics, but recorders. It's a lot more simple and Back in the 70s, those were big challenges that people like Jim Webb were able to get by and and produce great tracks for filmmakers like Robert Altman. Did you yourself ever think of going in the direction of multi-tracking at that early stage? Or was that just something that the, the filmmakers that you were working with that wasn't required for? Um, it never uh, appealed to me. I, As I said earlier, I loved... Um, mixing a track that the editor could cut with. I love mixing a track that the director could hear in dailies. Um, it was to me just a big happy challenge to sort of mix multiple mics together to create a soundtrack. Um, I, now, I really appreciated what John was doing with Altman. It was just... It was fascinating, but um, it was also, to me, overly complicated. Um, and I, I, I liked what I was doing. I, I liked creating a track from 
multiple mics or even one mic uh, to me was the, it, it just sounded better to me. And there was a gentleman whose name has come up many times, Jack Solomon, who is a mixer on, I think it was the um, Magnificent Seven <laughs> and has the most amazing resume. I believe you did run into Jack. I, I, uh, you know, as as I got a little bit more proficient, Jack would drop by the set and uh, sit down next to me, and it was really a privilege to talk to him. And um, it was also a privilege to hear stories from his point of view. At those at the, during Jack's time, they they really lived a wild life. Um, you know, they would go on location and really have a fantastic time. And they had to fight for their sound. I mean, the cameraman during those days didn't give a goddamn. And they also realized and really felt it. Oh, you can loop this. Don't don't get in my way here. Uh, but Jack was so, you know, tough that he would get the tracks. And... Um, I'm sure you encountered that. I'm sure we all do is that many people say, Oh, don't bother me now. Cause you can just loop this. And, um, I, I never really fell for that line. And, but you know, you have to be kind of a, a fighter to get past that. I'm going to play another clip, but this is from a comedy and, uh, you worked on quite a few of these, but this is one of the earlier ones that you did. Here, you can use my radio mic. Thank you. <coughs> <coughs> oh, mm, thank you, Your Honor. Protecting the safety of the Queen is a task that's gladly accepted by police squad. For no matter how silly the idea of having a Queen might be to us, as Americans, we must be gracious and considerate hosts. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant Revan. So that was Leslie Nielsen, who was at one point a very serious actor, but then kind of found a new life in comedy. That was for the Zucker Brothers and The Naked Gun. Yeah, you know, uh, my career really had different phases and the first phase was horror films and science fiction and then out of nowhere i started doing these goofy uh comedies and that was just fabulous because people on the set were having a good time and the actors were so goofy and as you mentioned leslie nielsen was just so special and the Zucker brothers were just, uh, they, they were creative. They really came up with a lot of funny, uh, quirky uh, twists to their comedies. Um, yeah, I, I, that, those were big kicks. With a comedy like The Naked Gun, was there a lot of improvisation in it? Was Joe out there on the boom all the way extended for you know a full magazine a 10 minute load because today you've got filmmakers um who you know have the beauty of uh, digital so they'll run a take for 30 minutes or so improvisational everybody's wired what was your experience in those early comedies those early comedies were so different 
uh, because they really were script bound. Uh, they, they would improvise after they did a few takes, they would do a few more takes, but they were really based on the scripts and the jokes that the Zucker brothers had come up with. It wasn't until we got a few years later with the Adam Sandler group and they all came out of television Saturday Night Live that the takes would just go 10 minutes. They would, they would just start riffing on one idea and just go to another idea. And those were just impossible for the boom man. And so consequently it just ended up becoming radio Mike. Um, and then plus they just, they wanted everybody mic'd because they didn't know who was going to talk next. Um, with the Zucker brothers, it was completely different. It was very scripted. Um, <laughs> it really changed, and I, I'm not sure it changed for the best in terms of recording sound. Uh, obviously, it's funny, and it's really well done, but for doing sound, it became a little bit of a nightmare. Um, uh, I, I, I Gosh, uh, the last one I did with uh, Adam Sandler was Summer Camp or something, and we would you'd look at a script and there'd be 15 people in it, and the producer or the director would say, well, let's just mic everyone. And you go, oh, okay. And um, used to be a time where the A, the director, would never tell you how to mic something. But now they were just insisting you had put it, uh, everything on a track. Well, I, I'm going to bring you back to... Uh, the Naked Gun. So you're 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 working with the Zucker Brothers, but you also work with Albert Brooks, another man known for comedy. Uh, is that pretty much the same way? Very much on script, not so much for improvisation. Absolutely. Um, I, I got to Albert through uh, James L. Brooks, Jim Brooks, and Jim. Uh, he was all about the script. And Albert really was the, very similar. It was all about the script. Uh, he, it was, it, it was, uh, <laughs> Albert, you know, you put people into categories and Albert was one of the funniest. I, I, it's very hard to get Albert on film as funny as he is in real life. He's, he's, you know, um, probably the funniest was Robin Williams. Uh, he was just he, it, your stomach would be hurting after he finished with you. And that was on Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Uh, was that shot in New York? Uh, very little of it. Uh, some of the key scenes you will remember, Central Park and Grand Central Station, but a great deal of it was shot in the sound stages of, uh, of MGM. And with Terry Gilliam, that was your f uh, first time working with him. That was a different voice. That was, you know, Terry Gilliam, who was of Monty Python fame, uh, f f the film Brazil. What was it like working with, with Terry and, and Robin? Um, Terry's the rare instance of a genius that's working in the movie business. He was uh, mind-boggling creative. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to sound exaggerated, but uh, Terry just did things and 
came up with things that just you had to marvel at. And then you have someone like Robin. It was it was too much. It was, they were really something. That's that that's a time where sound comes to be at the service of the actors and the talent. They they're just they're so far out there. You just get the mic in the right place and stand back. Another actor we worked with, uh, Jack Nicholson. He was the same way. You just you just made sure you got the mic in the right place, and they were going to do it. You didn't have to think about it. They were just so gifted. Robin was special, uh, you know, and his his sad demise. Uh, it was just, it was a pleasure and a privilege to have worked with him on that picture. And uh, we got pretty lucky there for a stretch where we did Jack Nicholson pictures and uh, with actors who were really gifted. Uh, well, one of the pictures I liked doing the most was broadcast news, um, mainly because the script was so good and the actors were so good. And that that was a James Brooks films with William Hurt and Holly Hunter. Yeah, that was really uh, that was special uh, because Jim was very intense and very serious and really wanted it to be really great. <laughs> Jim had no uh, qualms about telling you he wanted this to be great. And um, it, it, it that turned out to be one of my favorite pictures to work on, broadcast news. And with that, and so much of it being set in a television studio, was there any specifics that you had to get into technically um, in the pre-production, a bigger crew? Um, not a bigger crew, but Jim, <laughs> he wanted it to be like a regular television station, but we didn't shoot in a television station. We had to create one, and man, oh, man, was that something. Uh you know, with all the speakers and talk back and monitors and, oh, God. Uh, and Jim was, was not willing to compromise one iota on anything. We actually built the, the TV station at a theater called Wolf Trap, and it was just, oh, man. I mean, Jim was was a tough guy to work for, but he ended up getting really great results. And did you um, have to bring any engineers to do the rigs for the talkback systems, or was that something that you handled within your own department? I handled it within my own department, but I must say, I got, once again, I got lucky, and there was a, a cable man that popped up. He was a local cable man. I'd fired a couple others, and he was just a jack of all trades and he could do anything and he did it all. He just figured out everything. And no matter what I would say, Hey, how about this? He would go, sure. And the next day it would be up and running. It was DC Valentine. Thank you, DC. Uh, he was just such a great guy to work with. And, uh, no, we, we, we did it ourselves. Uh, <laughs> it would have been great to shoot in a TV studio, but we didn't. Once again, that was an Albert Brooks. 
he he was one of the actors in that and i got to be friendly with him on that and ended up doing defending your life so that was in 87 had you or were you into stereotype code nagra here or early days of data or anything like that a couple of years later, I got into both of those, the DAT and the stereo. Uh, but no, that was, uh, I I actually started using multiple mono recorders when, when I needed it. And um, I, I did some pretty good pictures at that point. I, I did one with Francis Coppola, which is a very sad picture because his son died on it. But uh, Gardens of Stone. Uh, yeah, that was Gardens of Stone in, I think that was in 1986 or 87. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about working with Francis, how you got that job? I don't even remember how I got it, although, um, uh, you know, at that point, you're, you've are you done so many pictures, one guy recommends you to another guy. And um, Francis really taught me some great lessons and he always, when he would do a scene, he would try to make it be that. And if we did a wedding or a funeral, he would have the orchestra there for the wedding. He'd have the the military band there and for the funeral. And it just, we just recreated the sound. And, um, I just learned so much from Francis. Uh, he just created the movie and the sound as if it was happening. Um, he was really something to be around. And, and uh, I remember one time Francis didn't get what he wanted and he picked up his monitor and he threw it on the ground and he looked at me, he says, I really, like that monitor and <laughs> and I, I know i'd make a few mistakes here and there and i'd go up to francis and i'd say i need another one and francis would go to me and the just the kindest of voices go well you're entitled and <laughs> when you start getting that kind of appreciation from a director that you you really admire you begin to have this feeling that you're entitled you you don't have to be perfect and you're also entitled to take the monitor and throw it um <coughs> jim jim was very emotional i mean there'd be a scene i remember something would go wrong and he'd take the chair and just throw it across the set. Uh, you know, these are really high strung individuals that are so committed to making something good that sometimes it just overwhelms them when it isn't. And if you go up to them with just a petty uh, complaint about this or that, they just blow a gasket and so you learn to keep your mouth shut when it's not important and like with jim i really figured jim out i i shouldn't say that but i just realized he wasn't concerned about my problems one iota but he was genuinely interested in how bill's 
performance was going or Albert. And if I brought that up, then he was really ready to listen. And um, I don't know, you know, the, the, this is, this is sort of how I got through the night with these people. Whereas with somebody like John Carpenter, here's a, a filmmaker who is very sound conscious. He's a composer and he's through every step of the way. He is, uh, he, uh, did you ever see any chairs being thrown or monitors going to the ground there? No, no, no. John was very quiet and to himself and you didn't really talk to John. <laughs> John was uh, a very unique individual and um there'd be like one or two times during a movie where we would exchange some kind of dialogue but most of the time we didn't talk um and there'd be a lot of times where I would be sort of in a minor argument with John about doing this or doing that and Joe would just come and pull me away and say, he doesn't want to hear that. Get out of there. <laughs> See, that's what a good boom man knows exactly when to step in like that, right? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, the, uh, Joe, Joe saved me many times. And, uh, uh, but then there are other directors who love that kind of emotional back and forth. Now, a lot of the films that you're working on mm -hmm. in this time period in the 80s and 90s, a lot of them are happening in California. Uh, now you've got so many films that are shot in different states. You were able to stay at home, have something of a home life or not? Yes. Uh, my career is a lot different than what the careers are today. Most of the films I worked on were in California. And most of the films I worked on were not multi-track. Um, so I, when they started changing, uh, I really, I was just really uh, unattracted to that. Uh, like the last couple of pictures I did were in Boston, you know, for, oh, two or three months at a time. And I just didn't care for it. And, um, uh, they also got to the point where they were almost all digital, and I just didn't care for that either. I just was so used to analog that I just began to sort of rebel to that. Now, uh, one of the actors that you'd mentioned earlier was uh, Jack Nicholson, who was in The Crossing Guard, directed by Sean Penn and in Hoffa, directed by Danny DeVito. Uh, Danny DeVito, well-known for his comedy. How did you come to work on Hoffa, and was that a good experience? Um, that was specifically because Jeff Wexler was not available, and he called and recommended me to Danny, and um, Danny was just an intense ball of fire. <laughs> And, uh, he was really something to behold. He, he just, he, he was not the comedian. He was this, um, Fellini type, uh, director. And he had one of the great actors of all time. And, uh, that one was kind of unique in that he came to me early on and he said, now, you got to keep this to yourself, but, you know, Jack, 
he's just not remembering his lines as easy as he used to. And uh, he's heard about Brando using this system with this little earpiece. Now, as you know, this has become very common. But at the time, it wasn't common at all. And so we would transmit the lines to Jack into an earpiece that he would wear, and his stand-in would be off the set, hidden, with me, actually, and with a microphone and headphones. And and Jack, that's how he said those lines in Hoffa. I don't know if Harry Bridges is a Democrat, excuse me, I don't know if uh, Bridges is a communist or if Goldblatt is a communist. And this is not the issue under the question of transportation unity. But they have been elected under the free democratic process of America and the Taft-Hartley laws. Mr. Goldblatt filed for 10 years, according to his testimony, non-communist affidavits. You think it's wrong? You investigate that. Oh, Mr. Hoffa, what do you mean? There, there, there is no question about Mr. Goldblatt, although there can be a question about Mr. Hoffa. There's absolutely no question about Mr. Goldblatt. Wait a minute, wait a minute, just a moment. Don't you say anything about a question about Hoffa. There is no question about Hoffa, and don't you say that either. Don't you say that I'm a communist or even affiliated with one. You said that enough around this country, and I want the American press to know that I resent the fact that there is any inference that I am a communist, that I am associated with or controlled by communists, and don't you use this as a sounding board for headlines for that purpose. And I appeal to the chair that that be taken out of the record and that nobody, nobody cast any aspersions about my loyalty to this country. I object to that. Now, I think when you, when you listen to a clip like that, that I, I, I think that perhaps the earpiece is there as a bit of support, but the dialogue is there. It, it's definitely because I, I find it hard to believe that he could have been fed that line Absolutely. and do that performance. The, the earpiece was just a crutch as if he had had a night the night before that he needed a little help. But the, he, as you can hear that he didn't need it on that. He was, he was going 90 to nothing. And when Jack is going 90 to nothing, get out of the way. He, he was great there. Um, uh, I, you know, it, he, <laughs> I, I, I marvel at Jack. Um, that's all I got to say. He's just one of the greats. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Sure, sure. Al Pacino's uh-huh. portrayal. I was wondering what, what you thought of that. Well, you know, it's such a different interpretation. Uh, I, I obviously am very um, partial to Jack because I worked with him. But, um, oh, Al Pacino, how do, you, how do you criticize or complain about Al Pacino? Uh, he, he was fantastic fantastic you know and that, that whole movie i love but um uh, uh it's just so di- those two performances are so different um i got to work with al on dick tracy and so i began to understand like with jack some of these actors have so much power and energy that you just it's hard to record them um, I worked with an actor quite a bit, Jack, um, Jeff Bridges and, and Jeff had an enormous range. His, in 
Jack obviously did, and Al really just went from A to Z in terms of what their performance could be. And you just tried to make sure you got it all in there. The first time I encountered that was Jamie Lee Curtis, because she became known as the Queen of Scream. But it was really something trying to record Jamie when she was screaming. So was that a combination of you and your preamps and and Joe and the boom in combination? Uh, I would like to put Joe and his boom. We worked out the... Um, uh, unstated ability for him to rise up when I needed help. Uh, I, I was good enough with, you know, manipulating a knob and the gain knob, but it really has to do with that microphone slowly rising and giving you the air you need. And it can't be, you can't say, I need air here. Uh, the boom man has to listen and know when to rise that microphone just at the right time and then when to come back in. And Joe really listened closely, and that that is so crucial. I mean, so much is crucial with the gain and structuring it so you can get the full level, but uh, having that mic in the right position, once again, that's it. <laughs> With Joe, what type of a presence uh, did he have on set? Because your boom man is an extension of yourself. And also another question regarding that third person in the department. Did you have somebody that worked with you for many years or that Joe would mentor or bring into the department? Most important was Joe was a boom man, but he was a boom man that would help the camera operator in terms of when they would see things, Joe would say, Hey, did you see this over here? Joe would help the electricians. Joe would help the grips. Joe was, uh, uh, how do I put it? He was just a filmmaker that worked with all the different elements of the crew. And he was just, you know, part of my career is truly uh, owed to Joe's personality on the set. And we ended up having consistently um, a boom, I mean, a cable man for show after show. We, we, we tried to have the same crew. Um, and so... Uh, for a long while, we used Richard Kite, and he did a great job for us. And we used Peggy names, and we just had a lot of great third persons who just were team players. And um, well, there's there's Peggy uh, worked with uh, Bill Kaplan a lot, and Ron Judkins, and and her son is in the business, and you know she's got a great great legacy of wonderful films that she worked on. So. Um, no, I, I got lucky with Joe. Joe was just a filmmaker who was also a boom man. Did he ever want to step up to mixing or he wasn't? Because uh, David McMillan talks about the boom operators that came through with him over the years and they he kind of pushed them on and said you encouraged them to to go to mixing now there are other boom operators that are quite happy that is their role. They're very happy. You know, Jeff Wexler, John Sofal, 
Um, what about yourself? Did did you ever say to Joe? No, no. Joe never wanted to mix. He he. If anything, he would have liked to have been a producer, and he would have been a good producer. But uh, he 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 was just an all round good boom man. Uh, I I have I, I don't know, uh, but I think it was due to his loyalty to me and my cable man's like Richard Kite's loyalty to me, and they just they stood with me because we were a great crew, and we just <clears throat> we would get ourselves into some very tough situations, and we just work our way out of them. Uh, and and it has to do a lot with loyalty, and uh, they were. Now you find yourself down in Orlando on a one of the Lethal Weapon series, where <laughs> there was a uh, building that oh the city gosh, yes. the city wanted to blow up. So that became a part of the film, which meant that you had to record a scene there that had to be timed out regarding what was happening in the background was there a lot of preparation that went into prepping with with um mel gibson and danny glover believe it or not that was improv obviously we knew the building was going to blow up and come down and we knew the camera positions and all that but that little sequence where they jump over to the car and into the foreground and have that little bit of dialogue that was done on the spot and I remember uh, both Joe and I were just shocked and Joe got in there and had the mic from underneath and there right in the background is the building coming down. It was stunning. Uh, but that director, Richard Donner, he was that kind of guy. If it, it, if it could be fun, he would do it. He loved doing fun things and, I don't know why he thought that was fun, but we he, we we were right there where that building was coming down. Well, Richard Donner just he was responsible for Superman, The Omen, the Lethal Weapon series, Maverick. Just a, a fabulous filmmaker. Uh, how was he with the sound department? Was he considerate? Was he you know? Uh, did you have a, a good working relationship with him? I thought we did. I thought we had a great working relationship. And uh, on the final day, uh, he came right over to Joe and I, he put his arms around both of us, and uh, he said to Joe and I, he said, when I work, you work. And on the next show, he never called. (laughs) 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 And and that happened more than once. Uh, uh, You never can trust what people will say on that final day. Yeah, you guys Uh, are the best I've ever worked with. See you in the next one and never hear from them again. So you've you've done two films with uh, with Warren Beatty, Dick Tracy, and Bullworth. Were those uh, great experiences? I know uh, he has a reputation for being meticulous and multiple takes. Was he pretty much the same on on both films? Because Bullworth certainly was a film that didn't quite find its audience. Different type of film, maybe not quite right for the time it came out. And Dick Tracy was a larger than life kind of comic book film. Dick Tracy was a great picture to have worked on. You had all these terrific talents. Uh, Vittorio Storara shot it. Um, 
Richard uh, Silbert was the production designer. Milena Caranara was the cast. It was just so great to work on. And you had a cast. It was a storybook cast, Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino. But uh, it was always so uh, intense because uh, Warren rightfully so has the reputation of changing his mind. And uh, so things were always changing. Now I got along real well with Warren and uh, it had to do on the first day he was late coming to the set and I hadn't met him at this time. I, I had not met him. And so I went over to his motorhome and knocked on the door and I just wanted to introduce myself and he said come in let's talk and so we talked and he said tell me this do you want to direct films and i said yeah it's a great goal of mine i'd love to and he said good he says on my pictures i always want people that want to direct anyway we got off to a really good start and um there would be times where Warren would come over to me and he would say, what do you think? And obviously he wasn't talking about sound. He was talking about whether the scene was working. And so I got along really well with, with Warren. Um, it, it was, it was, <laughs> oh God. Warren is, there's more stories about him than anyone else. And uh, they're all probably true. Just looking at the technology of the time, We've gone from Mononagras to you running multiple Mononagras, moving into digital. What was happening with you? As I would imagine, the needs of the departments, you needed to have more radio mics, or were you able to keep pretty much the same gear through a decade? Today, we're now having to have conversations about Dante and sending digital audio uh, down lines and it, it's it's an ever evolving uh, world for the production sound mixer. I got lucky and didn't have to get deep into the digital multi track. Um, I started using uh, a DAT uh, as a primary recorder, but I still backed it up with mono nagras. Uh, I started using two track nagras just to give myself another track. Um, eventually I went to a Fostech, which had four tracks. Um, but I was just sticking my foot into the waters. I, I never really got into the digital scene, not like Jeff and quite a few, well, John Pritchard. They really just, uh, went whole hog. And then before you know it, the industry had gone whole hog and, um, by that time, I was sliding out the back door. I, I know that doesn't sound really exciting to you, but uh, that's the truth of the matter. And with with Joe, did Joe ever have input in terms of what equipment that you would have? Did he say, okay, we used the Sennheisers on the thing because of the issues? Oh, my gosh. Uh, jo Joe was... T Joe Brennan was totally involved in every scene as to what mic would work. And we really turned into being no no Neumann aficionados. 
and Sheps. We would use Neumann's outdoor, Neumann shotguns outdoors. We would, if we had to mix two mics together, we would use Sheps. Uh, if we were indoors, we would use Sheps. Um, yeah, Joe, was, we, we were really uh, uh, tried to create a smooth sound that would just mix because we used two microphones on most everything because I really liked miking off-camera dialogue. And the editors really loved that. And uh, so we would either use two Sheps or two Neumanns so that they would slide together real easily. Bill Kaplan tells a story on uh, about when working with Tony Scott. When he checked the tape, there was nothing on it. And he had to go to Tony Scott to say, this morning's work, we don't have it. And just how gut-wrenching that was for him. And Tony Scott said, well, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll, you know, we'll give it to transfer and they'll figure it out. And he's like, no, I, we just don't have it. Did you ever have an experience during your career, one of those oh shit moments where, where something like that happened? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh God! I yeah, on Starman with John Carpenter, a really good scene, and I mean, I was mixing up a storm. I had the mic coming in, the mic going. I was, whoo! This is great, and I had a, a sun blanket over the recorder, so I couldn't see the reels going, but I knew it sounded great. And I looked down, and the tape was flapping. And I went over to John and I said to John, we're going to need to do another one. And he said, why? And I said, we're going to need to do another one. He says, well, what's wrong? It was very funny. Uh, well, it wasn't funny at the time. <laughs> right. But he was getting more irritated and I was getting more irritated. No, we're going to need to do another one. And so he walked over to with me to the tape recorder. He said, what's going on? And I said, the tape ran out. And everybody had been listening in on that, and they just died laughing. Now, remember, we knew each other real well. And um, so we did another one. Yeah, it happens. It happens, and uh, it's a painful uh, experience to have to admit that you just lost something important. But yeah, it happened. I, I probably made every good mistake you can make on a film. Well, it's good. It's actually great to hear these stories. You know, when I heard that from Bill, I'm like, oh, I, I can't believe it. So, on police story, I, I cut a take because there was a plane. Now, remember, this is one of my first jobs. And the director comes over to me and he says to me, never cut a take on my set. And uh, I went, okay, you're right. All right, you're right. Yeah. Anyway, the very next take, a plane comes over and I go, cut, cut, cut. He looks at me and he takes his leather-bound script and throws it at the sound card, and all the pages go everywhere. And a costumer walks over to me and he says, I like you. You're not going to be here tomorrow, but I like you. <laughs> and, and at that very moment, that producer from New Orleans who had hired me comes over and he says, give it to him. We all think he's a big <laughs> asshole. And so 
it was one of those things where normally it would have gotten me fired, but it, at this point, you know, the producer is the most important guy on the set in, on television. And so it actually made me some friends. Uh, oh, man, did I make mistakes. Oh, God, I can't tell you. I just, oh, oh Lord. Oh, I, I hate to even think about them. You know, at times I will wake up with nightmares about my career, about things that didn't go right. And, oh, man, you know, with Danny, I would make a mistake and he would just eat me alive. Uh, he, oh God. He told me, I, I find this very encouraging because then I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to go into those stories with Danny because he would get so pissed off at us. And I'll, I'll never forget. We did a scene. Uh, it was on a stage, but it was a forest and Joe had been miking the scene and the microphone had come into the scene. Now, normally the camera operator would say, cut, there's a mic in the shot. Well, the camera operator didn't see it because it was, it was supposed to be winter in this forest and there was a lot of branches and everything. Anyway, uh, on, on playback, uh, Joe saw it and said, we got to do it again. And Danny said, there's no way we're going to do it again. So anyway, the couple of nights later, we go to Daly's and Danny crawls on his hands and knees and goes right up to me and he says, you see that fucking microphone? Well, you're going to see it forever because I am not going to cut it out of the movie. And I went, okay, Danny. Yeah, I've made some beauties, some really beauties. But that was one that wasn't really quite my mistake. It was just I was involved in a big-time mistake. Right. And I today, that would be easily taken out by a visual effects artist. Oh, yeah. That's that's true. That's true. I mean, what, one of the common things that uh, we encounter today is multiple cameras and also wanting to get that mic in the shot and asking the visual effects department to remove it. And it is still a battle, even though it's being done on quite a few shows. It is um, definitely something that, you know, should be easier to do, but it is still a bone of contention. But back in, on, um, on Hoffa, I can only imagine what it was like to see <laughs> Danny DeVito coming at you. Oh boy. Oh boy. <sighs> Oh, man. I mean, yeah, everything happens. If, you, if you're if you out there in the in the battle zone, you're going to get hit sometimes. And um, anyway. <laughs> I, I'm going to play a, uh, another clip from a film that uh, you actually did uh, quite a few of these films. Captain, look, I need your help. I want you to leave the Nexus with me. We have to go back to our planet, Viridian 3. We have to stop a man called Soren from destroying a star. Millions of lives are at stake. You say history considers me dead. Who am I to argue with history? You're a Starfleet officer. You have a duty. I don't need to be lectured by you. I was out saving the galaxy when your grandfather was in diapers. Besides which, I think the galaxy owes me one. William Shatner and Patrick Stewart 
in the film Star Trek Generations. That was your <laughs> first of a series of being in the Star Trek world. I am no stranger myself. I worked on the Star Trek reboot that J.J. Abrams did back in 2008 and also the sequel Star Trek in the Darkness. So I just want to read you something which is, I think, quite unique. This is from a book called uh, These Are the Voyages. And it's a book that chronicles the original series from Star Trek. And they basically break down every episode in the series. But when they were filming the cage in 1964, it says here, the bridge was designed to include eight wild sections. That meant it could be moved to allow different lighting and a greater variety of camera angles. But wild sections with split levels are problematic, with connecting portions loosening through wear and then emitting noise whenever a cast member walked on them. Squeaks, groans, the soundtrack suffered. So... One of the issues that I had on the show was just the deck of the Enterprise. It was an elevated floor, very creaky, and it was always a battle to quieten those footsteps. What about your time with Star Trek, Tommy? What what type of uh, issues did you have when working on the deck of the Enterprise? Oh, my gosh. You know, we just carried oh a dozen of those rubber-backed rugs, we were constantly throwing them down. Uh, we would even go so far as to wet down the wooden floors. Your best friend becomes the costumer who puts the foot foam on the various things. I mean, you're just constantly trying to figure out how you can make this wooden boat sound like this modern spaceship. And you're never successful. And you just have to hope that you get a close-up that you can manipulate getting as good a track as possible. But yeah, it is, <laughs> it is one of those things that you are going to not get great sound on that master. That master is going to sound like, you know, a carnival. And um, uh, yeah, I, I did the first picture because my... Uh, 10-year-old, 11-year-old thought it'd be really fun to do a Star Trek. Uh, What I learned was it was really a pain in the ass to work on those big wooden sets at Paramount. Uh, Especially funny is those doors that have to close because, as you know, they're just big wooden doors with ropes and they just pull them back and forth. And, oh, my gosh. Um, Fortunately, the actors had big uh, booming voices and uh uh that, that saved a lot of a lot of heartache now on the tv series picard uh, jonathan frakes reprises his role and he also directed two episodes in this on the series he directed several of the star trek films that you did how, how did you find working with jonathan because he works very fast he works at that television pace Uh, Jonathan's one of the rare birds. He's just a sweetheart, just an absolute great guy. I I, I never had any problems with Jonathan and always love being there around Jonathan. Uh, uh, by that time we had gotten used to a fast pace on everything. Well, he's an infectious presence and, you know, yeah, that's, 
that's a good good word for him. He's he's a a royal sort. So you know, after after uh, Star Trek, you talked about you kind of came as part of the Adam Sandler group and started to do. Uh, more and more comedies and you know were, were you looking at this time that you know you've been a fixture on many of the huge feature films in los angeles that it was time to you know look at retiring or d- did you have less and less fun on set what was it that you said okay i'm i'm winding down wow okay uh, that's a good question um the adam sandler thing was very uh uh, I I got called because I had worked with Jack Nicholson, and um, Jack recommended me, so I got the picture. And before you know it, I was doing Adam's pictures, and um, Adam was one of the sweetest people you could ever work with. But I I never really liked the movies we were doing, and. Um, and then he got into this multiple camera, two or three cameras on everything, and these long takes, which was n- not pleasant for me and not pleasant for Joe. And then it was very simple. Uh, I was on location with Adam in Boston, and during this period, my mom uh, had Alzheimer's and had to come live with us. And it just became, um, I needed to come home and help out with my mom. And I came home and uh, did the best I could. And then at that point, I turned 60 and I just, um, I uh, retired. Uh, But it, it, it had to do with my mother being sick and me needing to be at home and, um, uh well and also too just you know being on location for three or four months at a time wasn't working well for me and um that's what happened and did uh, joe did he feel the same way did you both kind of look at the end of your working relationship together or did he go on to continue to work no for his own personal reasons joe had moved to new mexico and had begun, well, his wife was living there. And uh, Joe was working with other mixers. And it was just becoming too hard for Joe to go on these locations with me in Boston, and especially come back to Los Angeles and work on these Adam Sandler pictures. So um, actually, I was doing a couple pictures without Joe. And that became very hard for me because I had so depended on Joe that um, uh, I've never really admitted this, but that was one of the reasons I retired. I I had so uh, working with Joe was such a pleasure that uh, without Joe, it was not nearly as much of a pleasure. And uh, there you have it. No, it was a relationship that endured over some of the most uh, wonderful movies of the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it's a a testament to your friendship and to your working relationship for it to have endured over that time. Well, we were good friends and we're still good friends. And um, 
Oh, I'm sure if Joe had kept working with me, I probably would have kept, I would have stayed with it, but it just didn't work out that way. When you look at the Cinema Audio Society and you see, you know, the number of people that are coming into the organization and uh, what what would your words be to, you know, just uh, the younger membership that want to work on feature films or, you know, want to have a career that like, like what you have had? Have you any words of wisdom? Yeah, yeah. I I think that you should educate yourself uh, by seeing the movies and growing a a love and passion for the movies. Um, I, I know that's what I did. I read a lot about the movies. I really knew who I was working with. I really knew about people that had preceded me. And so when I did get a chance to work with other people, I was really aware of what I was doing. And um, I think CAS allows people to do that. And you get to appreciate other people's work and you get to appreciate other people's careers. And uh, that that really makes it uh, rewarding. And when you look back at your career, making that move from Louisiana, working with all these wonderful directors, is there anything else that you, or anybody else that you would have loved to have worked with? Or when you look back, there's a particular film that you say, that's just, that I couldn't have done any better. <laughs> uh, Peter, 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 I have two resumes and one of them includes Citizen Kane and she wore a yellow ribbon and Psycho. And if I could have worked with some of the great directors there, would I have been happy? But, you know, you work with the best people that you can and try and do the best job. You know, you just, you do what comes to you. You do as good a job on every picture, even the low budgets or even the television. And somehow or another, one thing leads to another. And, um... You know, that's what you do. I just, I really loved everything I worked on. Uh, and I, I can't, you know, I had such a hard time with so many of them because I had to learn from the ground up that I, I it was painful at times, but I, I figured it out. And uh, I, at this point now, I, I can't think of any pictures I would have rather have done other than the ones that came in previous generations. And if there was one particular film that I could say to a member of Cinema Audio Society that they should watch that you did the sound on, what would that film be? Right off the top of my head would be Dick Tracy. It just had a little bit of everything, great dialogue and great live music and um, songs by Stephen Sondheim. It just was a great picture. And it had great sound. I'm chairman of the board. Why you? Because I have a vision. A big boss must have a vision. We got a town with thousands of small stores and businesses. People who are working real hard. I think they should be working real hard for us. Because we are for the people. And if you ain't for the people, you can't buy the people.